We're in this vision series, and this vision series is about what COV is about. COV is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is about spiritual growth. It's about family. Today, we conclude this series as we talk about family, and we're going to jump into the fact that sometimes our blood relatives aren't as close and connected to us as those who are our family members because of what Christ has done. We're committed to making much of Jesus here. Jesus is the gospel, the good news that we do not have to work our way to God, but God came to us in the flesh and lived the life we could not, died the death we should have, even though he was without sin, and he triumphantly and physically rose from the dead, defeating the curse that sin had brought to mankind. That's some really good news. And we're committed as a church body, as God's family at COV to helping those that have opted in, who have said, yes, this is the place, that this is my church, this is my family. We want to help you grow spiritually, to progress in your sanctification, to move towards more and more Christ-likeness, which we believe happens by obeying God at His Word for the right reasons. But all of what we do as we gather on a Sunday is to equip and to celebrate and to encourage God's family in the fact that Jesus is Lord. And we're committed as a people, as God's family, to love one another, to serve one another, to point the world to the Christ who hijacked our eternities, to the God who adopted us into his family, not because of anything we could contribute to or anything that we bring to the table, but simply because of God's infinite grace expressed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to study what it means that you and I are adopted into his family and what it means to be an expression of his family at Church of the Valley. Can I just be honest? Good. Families tend to be pretty dysfunctional. Is it just me? Okay, some of you are like, like, what are you talking about? My family's perfect. Liar. I don't know about yours, but the family I grew up with really wasn't a family in the traditional sense. My dad had been married three times. My mom was my dad's third and final marriage. He had another child, my half-sister, in his first marriage, who he really didn't get to know or see until she was 16 years of age. He married my mom a year before I was born and divorced her when I, before I was a year old. My mother also had been married three times. My father had been her second marriage, and I really don't know much about her first marriage or really remember much about her last marriage other than I have a few step-siblings I don't keep in touch with. My mom passed away when I was eight. My father passed away when I was 30. I married this woman named Erin Riley, who has, well, she was Erin Deal at the time, who has a family who, like, really like each other. And it's always been weird to me. Because we do these family events with grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, but when the Collins, Deals, Hinsons, and Riley families get together, it's always a party, annoyingly so. Party for 25. So in my opinion, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that family because I didn't grow up with it. Aaron and I have been married 16 years, and the Lord has shown me not only how important blood family is through this family of six, the, especially because Aaron and I get to parent and shepherd for holy, sanctifying dependence from the Lord, but we also maybe for the very first time ever are experiencing what having a church family is like. 
from the fact that countless people in this community pray for our children, invest in our children, pray for us, care for us, and they help us raise our children. To the fact that we have friends who feel closer than family that we spend time with socially and spiritually. One thing about family is that there are two extremes in most families, and most have experienced one of these. Some families are passive advert. They are unwilling to deal, or I'm sorry, they're, they're conflict advert. They're unwilling to deal with problems. They are passive. They refuse to allow conflict to be addressed, and they think that conflict being avoided is healthy, which I can attest to is in direct conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or you have family that is just in this constant drama, okay? This was my family. It is the only way you know how to exist within family because people are just talking about one another, and no one really ever cares for one another because everyone's trying to fix one another, which is also in conflict with the gospel. You and I are adopted into a family that is about Jesus, is about honoring God and making much of Him, not through our actions, but our devotion to Him through loving one another. Ooh. So let's start with a passage that the gospel writer Mark records, where Jesus has been traveling and His blood family is trying to get a hold of Him and calm Him down from all His religious activity. You ever have family members like, hey, relax, Jesus, 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 blah, 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 right? And here's where we see this in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. He then replied, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Dang, Jesus. He's not throwing shade on his family. He's making the point that those that are in his family are not through birthright, but they are by a rebirth. We're adopted by God. We are reborn. And those who have been reborn do the will of God, the God who sent Jesus, who was full of grace and truth. But the idea of rebirth, it's pretty foreign to us. And to be honest, it was pretty foreign in Jesus' context as well, because back when we studied John 3 decades ago, in John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus replied as he was talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was, we call him Nick at night, because he came at night. He didn't want anyone to know he was talking to Jesus. Jesus responds, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked? Great question but then he makes it gross. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit, capital S. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is making the point that our rebirth, not our physical birth, but our new birth through the Spirit of God is what must happen to us in order to be brought into God's family. And just like your physical birth, you were not consulted. Did you know? God wasn't like, hey, do you want to exist? Uh-uh. You were just there. 
And this is what happens when God adopts you. You have a new birth. You are born again. You are made new in your new birth as a child of God's. Can you believe? Just think about this for a second. Can you believe that God adopts us into his family? Think about that for a second. I know how messed up I am. You're about to know how messed up I am in just a few minutes because I'm going to admit some stuff to you. And yet God decides to adopt us into his family. It's crazy. Even though we brought nothing to the table, we didn't do anything to earn this adoption or rebirth. God didn't come halfway and then we came the other half. You did nothing to be born the first time and you did nothing to be born the second. It is simply by God's immeasurable grace. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 6 through 7, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Not only does God the Father see his son when he looks at us and all our transgressions and all our mistakes, but he does so because he is kind. And that is expressed in the person, the work, and the words of Jesus Christ, which is grace to us, a gift to us. Paul says in Romans 2, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's his kindness that calls us to change direction. He didn't force anything on it. He was kind, and he has given us the eyes to see him, and so we change direction. It is his goodness that draws us to himself. And we are gifted over and over and over in this life as we are his, to be his children. But if earning is our motive, if legalism is our motive, if trying to do something in such a way to gain God's favor is your motive, you will actually never receive the grace of your adoption because you'll still be trying to earn it. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, it's uh, before 2 John, and it's not the book of John, it's 1 John, because the same John also wrote, wrote these three letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he concluded his writings with Revelation. But in 1 John, one before the John, we have the disciple whom Jesus loves, and he's writing another letter to the early church that was probably written from Ephesus. The book of Ephesians is the book we've studied before, and the book of, or he was one of the elders in Ephesus. And he was refuting heresy. He was refuting false teaching. He was refuting some specific things that were pretty important to our faith, including Gnosticism, that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. Some said Jesus wasn't the Son of God, and others said his death wasn't actually necessary for sin to be forgiven. You know, the foundations of our faith. And so John writes this letter refuting that, and John is one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his disciples, and he refutes these ridiculous claims. And so we're just going to study one verse in 1 John chapter 3, in which he states what a person who has been redeemed by Christ, who has seen Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection as the sole means of justification for him, what happens to those people? 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. It is love 
that propelled God to do what he did. It was love that caused Jesus to say what he said after being beaten and mocked and spit on. In Luke chapter 23, while Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Don't pull yourself out of the story, church. That's to us as well. And it was love, love for the Father, love for the Father's will, and love for you and I that God caused, that God did what he did, not because we were worthy, but because his love expressed through kindness in Jesus Christ was lavished upon those who do believe that Jesus is enough, those who plead Jesus, knowing that they're guilty, but knowing that Jesus came and did for them what they could not do for themselves. I say all of that because this is the family that we're adopted in. The family of God's, as a representation of his grace, we are called children of God. So who's your daddy? God's your daddy. And because of that, we are not seen as slaves or subordinates, but as sons and daughters of the God Most High who created us, the God that we ran from, the God who knew us before we were in our mother's womb. And even though we rejected God since birth, God did not and will not forsake or disown us. Because he proved it through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So he goes on in 1 John 3.1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. So listen, church, you are not engineers. You are not retired people. You are not moms. You are not CEOs. You are not project managers. You are not police officers. You are not students. You are not grandparents. Before any and all of that, you are a child of the God Most High. And that's where our identity comes from. Adopted by a perfect God while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes on, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Okay, real talk. Um, the world doesn't really like Christians. Did you guys know that? No, seriously. Like, they don't like, I know this is new to all of you because you don't leave your house, apparently, but the world doesn't like Christians. Sometimes they like what we do. Sometimes build a hospital, but leave us alone. But they really don't like what we stand for. A Lord and a Savior who was killed because no one was good enough to work their way to God. So God worked his way to us by living the life that we don't live, dying the death that we should have died, and rising from the dead, proving and cementing his power over sin and death. That's super offensive to a world of people who think that they're inherently and genuinely good people. Yet the standard is not one set by comparison to other people, but the standard is set by the one, the only one, who actually fulfilled the standard, and that was God in the flesh himself. We watched the American Gospel last uh, weekend. It was at the, uh, we did COV after party, for Sunday at 4 p.m., and we were in the chapel, and we were watching this documentary, which you guys can watch on YouTube. I'd highly recommend it. And it was so good to watch it as a community, pause it, and have a conversation. But one of the many things that were said in that video that blessed me was that Christianity is the only religion or faith where we are not self-righteous. 
And some of you were like, yeah, but Christians act self-righteous all the time. Uh Uh-huh, I know. But it is the only religion or faith where it is not self-justification. We're not self-righteous, which is ironic because every other religion and belief in any type of deity makes the claim that you can or have to work your way to God. Tim Keller says it this way about the gospel. I'm sure I've quoted this before. How religion works is, if I obey, then God will love and accept me. How the gospel works, God loves and accepts me, therefore I wish to obey. Such a small difference, but so, such an eternal difference. And yet, even though we are not righteous through self, even though we are not self-righteous, the world sees us as so, and the world says, how dare you think you're better than someone else just because of your beliefs? Listen, we do not at all think we are better than anyone else. We know that we're just as messed up as everyone else, and that's the point. or Jesus, as he is just called Levi, a tax collector, to come follow him. And then Levi throws this party for him, and he's there with his disciples, and all these Pharisees are whining about him, hanging out with sinners. Jesus responds to these guys whining at him, and he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, I would include self, the self-righteous, the legalists, but sinners to repentance. It is those who are unwilling to admit that they sin. It is those that are unwilling to admit that they're sinners that I worry most about. Those who treat sin like a mistake or an oops rather than the reason God has put his son to death because our sin, which we've committed against a holy and perfect God, creates a chasm. You know what a chasm looks like? Often what our Sunday mornings look like when people sit all around. but we're family. And our sin has created this chasm between us and God, and only God could make the bridge so that we could walk across to get to him, and that bridge was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the reason the world does not know us is because they don't know him. They don't understand the gospel. They may have heard it before, but they do not believe it. I meet with people all the time, and then, you know, I'm talking with Mike or one of the elders, and I'm like telling them about the meeting, and they're going, so so do you think they heard you? I'm like, yep, but I don't think they're going to listen. And I think a lot of people have heard the gospel, but very few listen to it. It blows me away how the world sees the message of the gospel as either too simple or too complicated. For the world, it may be too easy or it might be too hard, but for the Christian, it was just right because our eyes were open to the need that we have and the solution in Jesus Christ and him alone And so what other evidence or benefits or gifts do we receive if we truly are children of God? Paul speaks about this to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 8. Mike read this, verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit, those who walk in the Spirit, those who live by the Spirit of God, they are children of God. God doesn't just stamp you not guilty. He seals you with the Spirit so that the Holy Spirit, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, verse 11 of the same passage, resides in us. And those who are made new creations, those who have been born again, they are gifted the Spirit of God, in which the Spirit leads, the Spirit refines, the Spirit sanctifies us more into the image of Christ as evidence of our adoption in God's family. 
We talked about spiritual growth last week, and we talked about how it's difficult because you don't see people grow really quickly. It takes time. And the spirit you received, verse 15, does not make you a slave so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit you received did not make you a slave. He does not make you a robot. He does not make you a factory worker or an employee, but the spirit leads us into holiness. He convicts us when we are running from God by bringing to mind God's word and his statutes. We're not living in fear of losing our status with God or our sonship or our adoption because the spirit seals and sanctifies us as children of God. This term sonship was a term that was used in the Greco-Roman era to signify that when you were adopted into a family, you received all the same rights and same benefits and the same status as a child who was born naturally into a family. And we receive sonship because of Jesus. And at the end of verse 15, he says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And by who? The Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of God resides in us. Because we're led by the Spirit of God. We are children of God. We can cry, Abba. That is not just a lame band from the 80s, guys. 70s, sorry. Abba, it's an intimate term. It means daddy. It means daddy. Because you and I do not have an absentee father in our God, but a present daddy who is giving us the gift to his son as we are the church of Jesus Christ and we, or as we are the church and we are his bride. See, our heavenly father is not distant. You don't have to look at your God and have him say, not right now, I'm on my phone. You don't have to look at your God and worry if he doesn't have your best in his mind for you. There are a lot of things I do wrong as a dad. There were a lot of things my father did wrong as a father, and neither of us are the savior. Neither of us are supposed to make anyone feel better. It's about God the Father sending his son and doing what we could not do ourselves. And so verse 16, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit testifies, he confirms, he reminds, he instructs that we are God's children. And because of our adoption and because of grace through our heavenly Abba Daddy, we do not have to feel like slaves. We do not ever have to feel depressed or lonely. But that doesn't mean that we don't. And that doesn't mean that we won't. So I have to be really real with you right now. Like, so real, we may edit this out of the video, okay? The past few months have been especially hard for me. In the past six weeks, I, we, have lost a dear, dear friend in Paula Miller who served and attended here at COV with her husband, Derek, who's serving right now. She was a bundle of joy, and she literally had the best laugh I've ever heard in my life. And it was sudden, and it was not at all expected. A few weeks back, another dear friend of mine, Marianne Olfeson, passed away from cancer. 
Marianne was like a spiritual mother to me. She was a mentor. She has so many texts on my phone of just encouraging prayers sent to me. And I met with her and was encouraged by her, and Sarah Delwood met with her and was encouraged by her, and she had 41 years of godly ministry where she poured into other people. And just two weeks ago, my stepdad's dad, Dallas Morgan, the last human being on earth who called me Timmy, and it better stay that way, <laughs> he went on to his next life in his mid-90s. And all three of these people were friends. All three of these people felt like family. And to have all three of them pass away in such a short time, it's hit me pretty hard. As a pastor, we don't really grieve like the rest of the world. In theory, as a pastor, we're supposed to be like spiritual firefighters that run towards danger and run towards grief and run towards tragedy. And on top of that, let's just be real, I don't grieve very well because I've had so much death in my life, I've just become numb to it. All three were big encouragers of mine and others. And I've been noticing as I'm getting older and more mature, I hope, that as I'm living life, there's this inevitable reality that loss is going to happen. But on top of loss of lives of these people, it's brought to mind all the fact that I've had lots of loss of relationships as well. There have been people who have been at this church claiming that they are the family of God, but attempting to hurt and lead astray those people that are here. And you just need to know this about me. I take very seriously the responsibility of being a shepherd for people's spiritual well-being. I take it very seriously. So I'm not going to be at every church event, but I will be caring, praying for everyone, and pouring into those who have opted into the expression of God's family here at COV. While protecting the sheaves, the sheaves, the sheep from wolves, who attempt to make the gospel about human effort rather than God's intervention. So with being an under-shepherd under Christ and being a guardian of the truth alongside the other elders of this church, we want to make sure that you understand that we will protect, we will pray for, and we will point you towards Christ, but we will probably offend you if you believe that you were entitled to anything. We don't have the ropes up. One of the reasons we don't have the ropes up is a certain service I'm not going to mention burst constantly would pull the rope down so people could sit there. What kind of, all right, I'm not going to go there. But we wanted people to just come and be family. We wanted you to be able to connect and opt in and even see each other's expressions as I make fun of some of you. <laughs> but hear me, God doesn't have a bunch of only children. He has a family that is full of siblings that make up God's family. And as difficult and taxing as it is to be brutally honest about who we are, because we lose people, we lose relationships, because we want to protect those who are in and not cater to anyone but obey God's will, this is hard. So on top of all the losses of lives, I've personally been dealing with these specific losses of relationships, some because I had to be direct and confront something in someone, which I'm always willing to do, but it always comes at a cost. Some just because people move away, primarily because it's ridiculous to live here, which I'm sure you all know, because of the cost of living, and yet the cost of leaving seems better. But I feel led to be here, church. 
I feel led to equip, to make adequate, as we taught last week, the children of God's who believe that this is the expression of God's family that they're a part of. It's crazy to think that I hope this is my last pastor job, okay? And I said that in first service, and someone walked up to me, and I'm like, are you leaving? I'm like, no, I'm not leaving. I love this place. I love the community. I love the elders. I love the staff. I love the city. I also love air conditioning, just putting that out there. But I'm not going anywhere. But I, I say that I want this to be my last pastor job because I want to fulfill my duties as a shepherd in this place, as a teacher, as an evangelist here in Santa Clara with all of y'all, as long as you'll have me or until the Lord says I've fulfilled my task. But to make decisions for the church based on 30 years, that's a whole new outlook for me. Okay? Like, I haven't thought of anything for 30 years. And if you've known me for more than two years, you know how ridiculous it is to believe that I want to stay in one place at all. So please know that when we encourage you guys to be here each week, we're saying it because it's the opportunity for us as a family to hang out together, to do life together, to worship together, to be equipped together, to make much of Jesus together throughout our daily lives. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. We're not. He is. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We studied that last week. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. No castaway Christians, guys but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? When Jesus comes back. So church, if you hear from me, because you weren't here on a Sunday, or you hear from some other person within the community, it's not because we keep attendance and then grade you on it. It's because as a family, we want to do things as a family. We don't need to be some teenager in another room playing on their phone. We want to do life together. And God's people mattered to him and to us. And so when you miss a Sunday, we miss you. And you miss out on being part of what we get to do as a family. Because we're probably not going to post all of this online. You're all going to be like, how's Tim doing? And other people are going to be like, what are you talking about? So listen, I don't need a text on Monday hearing about why you weren't with us. In fact, okay, real quick, don't text me on Monday about church, please, ever. It's my Sabbath. It's my day off. I just, I just want to be Reagan, Lorelai, Evie, and Boston's dad, and I want to be Aaron's husband. That's who I am on Mondays. If it's an emergency, tell Mike. He'll bother me. But please, if you're not going to be here, let someone in your sphere of influence, let someone who you're connected with know that you're not going to be there. Ask them to take notes for you. Ask them to teach you what you learned. Watch the message that we put on podcasts and on YouTube. Why? Because we all want to be going in the same direction as a community gathered around God's word. See, we're about spiritual growth, which happens through discipleship, and discipleship is not accidental. It's intentional. And we really take seriously God's word and studying it together. So I've lost, I've had loss of friends. I've had loss of family. I've experienced relationships that were once very close 
become very distant. I've experienced relationships that I believed were gospel-centered turn out to be more about someone trying to control me rather than spur me on towards love. I've sat down with people who were grieving after they had significant loss, take on much of that pain with them because they became very close to me and then have them move away without once asking for guidance or help and not acknowledging how disappointing it was to their family and to us. I had people who were part of bringing me to this church act as if they were my best friend only to throw rocks at me and my character because they couldn't control me like they expected to. I've had friends that were like family that I had to confront because of some sin that was hurting them and others in the community then have them consider me the problem because I confronted what they were doing in the community. Church family, ministry would be so easy if there were no people. And being a people, being God's people is hard. Being in one another's lives is hard. But not only is it hard, here's what it's most importantly, it's refining. God's plan for his children is to love one another, to refine one another, and to care for one another. All three, love, refine, and care happen together, and it's not easy. So let me take you to a passage that we really love to read, but we don't think about what it really means. Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Oh, that's so nice. We read this, we have it at the bottom of our coffee cup, we sit across the table with our Bibles out and our journals and our different colored pens, and we think, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We use this verse to talk about how good it is to be in a spiritual relationship, but iron sharpening iron is violent. It is loud, it creates sparks, and it isn't at all something that you can do easily. So here's where I'm going to be really real. I've essentially, for the past few months, been a high-functioning, depressed person. And I've gotten like this before. We call it the Holy Spirit hangover. For those of you that aren't in the pastorate, that's what we call it. And usually when I get like this, I snap out of it. it just takes a little bit of time. But lately, I haven't. I've just kind of been in this fog now, hear me, I'm not planning on going anywhere. Talked with the elders, and we're talking about giving me a sabbatical next year. That sounds awesome. But that's, that's not going to fix everything. I don't want another job. I want to be here. But because we're a family, I want to be real with you. If you're just visiting for the first time, sorry. But I want you to know who we are. I've seen churches be split apart because pastors isolated themselves and never shared how they were doing. I have seen pastors sabotage their ministries and churches and marriages and relationships because they were isolated and figured that they had to keep up this persona of being Superman to their entire church. I don't want to be about that business, church. I am holy because Christ made me holy, but I am just as much in process as everyone else. Wednesday, I had lunch with an old friend who I used to work with. He leads a church down the street now. And I was real with him about where I'm at. <laughs> like, I think it took like 12 seconds. Like, we get in the car. How are you? <laughs> and as I told him everything that was going on, at least most things, he opened up to me about many of the exact same issues and situations that he had personally dealt with in his ministry. 
He quoted a verse, or really a command that God uses throughout all of the Old Testament, and he uses it in the New Testament. And when he said this to me, it was literally like God was speaking through his voice. It was this aha moment. It was this light bulb moment. And even though I knew this verse intellectually, I've preached this verse, I needed to hear it from his mouth with his tone of voice in that moment. Here's what he quoted, Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I have never felt the way I did in that moment. Not because I didn't know intellectually that the Lord is with me. No matter the loss, no matter the broken relationships, I have a God who is with me and I am sure of that. He will not forsake me. And he is what matters most. Not because I get paid to be a Christian or because I believe he exists, but because the God of the universe is with me and I shall not be afraid. And I will take courage. So, I want you to know that with every loss of relationship each of us have, we probably start to buy into this lie that we're alone. In 2019, we are more connected this time in history than ever before, and yet we probably have never been more isolated personally and relationally than we are today. Facebook, you suck. And the promise from God is that as his children, as his family, we are not, nor will we ever be alone. Ever. Church, I'm telling you what I'm dealing with because I don't want you to accept some Instagram post version of me with filters and the perfect camera angles so only have one chin that makes me look a certain way. If we are family, we are in this together through and through. When it's good, when it's hard, we're in this together for the glory of the one who died and rose again so that we could be called children of God. I also don't want to myself or for you to listen to the lie of culture that keeps telling me that as long as I give a good impression of who I am, people will love me. While believing that if people really knew who I am, there is no way they could ever love me. Guess what? God knows me. God loves me, and I am his, and he is mine, and I am part of his family. So listen, if you are part of his family, you have to love me too. <laughs> because God commands us to love one another, even and especially when we are broken and in need. Because you and I are part of something that is so much bigger than ourselves. We are part of God's family, and we need one another more than we realize. So, concluding Romans 8, verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. Co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. Family, if we have been humbled, if we have bowed our will to God's grace, if, if we by faith have repented and changed our direction both spiritually and mentally, we are included in Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters, and we have a big brother, Jesus, to thank. We are called 
God's heirs, which means partakers of inheritance, you and I, who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 4, but when the set time has fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his, God has made you also an heir. Paul says this to the church in Galatia. He says it to the church in Rome. And at the end of verse 17, if indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we also may share in the glory. With sonship, there will be trials. There will be misunderstandings. There will be broken relationships because some just will not turn to Christ or understand why you would. But let's not forget the trials and suffering produce something in us. You guys know that, right? Like we talk about this a lot and we studied this as a, as a leadership team this morning, James chapter one, verses two through four. Consider it pure, what's that word? Joy. Family. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, what's that word? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. So hear me, if you have one takeaway, here's a good one. Maturity is the best target that any of us can aim at. And it requires trials and suffering to produce perseverance, which will complete its work of making us mature. And when we see life this way, the tragic and the trials have a purpose that makes the tough stuff more bearable. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, John records, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or husband's will, but born of God. So here's my question. Have you received Jesus as Lord? That doesn't mean you just accept his existence, but that you hate the sin you once loved and you love the son whom you once didn't believe in. Have you by faith repented of your sin and turned around to follow Jesus because God doesn't have only children. He adopts you into a family. So worship team, why don't you get set up? And I'm going to conclude with an email that I received earlier this week. And it is so ironic that when at least I've been struggling and dealing with stuff and discouraged and hiding and, and to be real, just not being honest about it. God shows up with something like what I'm about to read to you. Many of you know her, Melissa Castillo. She was part of our church for this past year. She was a young adult who came up to the Bay Area, and somehow she found her way to this church. And just last week, she moved back down to Southern California. And here's the email she sent me. I asked for permission. Here's the email she sent me literally out of the blue. Here it is. Hey, Tim, it's Melissa. Smiley face. I'm officially moved in and settled in Costa Mesa now. While it's sweet to be closer to home, it was still quite hard leaving the Bay Area, even though I only lived there for a year. I moved there by myself and nothing but a car, no friends and no family near, and all I wanted was to feel a sense of community. 
I seriously believe it was the Holy Spirit that led me to COV because I never planned on visiting at all. I heard maybe 10 minutes of some sermon that was on the website on a Sunday morning, and I felt such a strong urge to just go, and I'm so glad I obeyed. I remember so many people talking to me after church and that you had prayed over me during a worship night later that week when people were praying over specific people in the community. I felt so known and cared for in those moments. COV was my home for the last year. Never before in church have I felt more freedom and safety in worship, and I always left every service learning something new about who God is. I would get so excited that I would share my takeaways with my boyfriend on Sundays and send him the recorded sermons, and every conversation we would have afterwards was so fruitful. I developed a deep desire to read the word because the culture of the church was so deeply in love with the gospel. that it overflowed so naturally in the way people talked and lived their lives. COV has such a special place in my heart because it reminds me of God's faithfulness and his care for me. I read that to you not to sell you on this church. If you don't want to opt in, there's plenty of great churches. Go. But if you haven't already opted in, if you haven't really committed to this community, I read that to you because I want you to know that that's what this community is about. That culture that she experienced, that culture that she saw, we fight hard for to be. COV, I want you to know that we want to be about making much of Jesus. We hope that you would opt in by making much of him and by growing spiritually and being part of God's family through the expression of COV. But one of our leaders, it was Kevin, simply said, COV isn't for everyone, and we're okay with that. And what he meant by that was there's plenty of churches that people can attend or be at, but we want to invite people to participate in what Jesus is doing here by making us a people who belong together. I've been in church culture for 18 years. I've been in leadership. I've seen things that absolutely don't work. I've seen glimpses of the Spirit moving in powerful ways, but I have never been in a place I'd rather be than this one. I think God's at work in us. I think God's working through us, and I think that we are not going to be a people that just teach and tell you, write down notes, and then leave, and then come back. We want us to be a family and do life together.